Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. My name's Kevin. I'm your host. We are back after a very long uh, COVID-19 summer that really threw a wrench in it. Uh, here today with, as promised, first guest, uh, good friend of mine, former teammate, Marvis. Marvis, how's things, man? Cannot complain one bit, even though we're uh, in a pandemic, things are good. Yeah, yeah, it's been a hell of a year. Uh, we're coming to a close, and I'm sure that 2021 is just going to bitch slap us even harder. Um, but thank you for coming down, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, you are the very first interview. You're popping that cherry, bro. Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, to all the listeners out there, uh, all 57 of you or whatever it is for right now, hopefully uh, two, three years from now, there's a few thousand of you listening. Uh as this is the first interview episode, if you have any constructive criticism, send it my way. I got thick skin. Uh, it's not going to bother me. If you hear the ceiling fan in the background, please uh, leave a comment on Instagram or Facebook. There's not a whole lot I can do about the two dogs running around the house. Um, so you may hear them bark. I'll do what I can to clean it up uh, in the editing program afterwards. But we're just going to launch right into it. Um, background on on the podcast. So when I started all this back in March... Uh, it was actually just after Marvis had come down and filled in a shift uh, on my team. And as as so often happens, um, sometimes uh, on the road, you're blessed with a little bit of time to just uh, chill and, and hang out with uh, with your teammates. And it was uh, Marvis, myself, and, and our supervisor were sitting out at the fuel pumps talking about uh, it, we had just uh, faced the start of COVID-19, uh, really the the huge impact of it. Uh, and then uh, the death of in custody death of George Floyd as well, and and talking to Marvison about his experiences, both growing up uh, as well as his experiences now as a law enforcement officer, which we'll get into that one time. Uh, somebody called in a suspicious blackmail driving a police car that I still cannot get over that that actually happened. Man, but we're just gonna. Uh, uh, there's a comedian Kyle Kinane who says we may not be able to solve racism, but we're gonna we're gonna do our damnedest to take some of the sharp edges off. So. Uh, with that, Marvis, man, first icebreaker question. If you could have a cup of coffee or drink or uh, iced tea or, you know, slice of pie, whatever the case may be, with anybody living or dead, who would it be and why? Really setting the tone with that question. Let me give it some thought. Um, as you know, I'm not a drinker, but I can appreciate a good glass of iced tea, Sprite on the rocks with the lime. <laughs> This is coming from a former bartender, right, by the way. Exactly. He is available for parties. Seven hundred dollars an hour. Um let's see. I want to keep this kind of fresh. So if I could have a cup of coffee with anyone. You know what? I think I will go with Oprah. And I say Oprah because I was just raised by pretty much all women and my mm -hmm. grandfather. She is one of the most influential black women that I can think of, especially when it comes to the women in my life, like my grandma, my sure. mom, aunties. I would just love to learn her hustle, her grind, like what it took for her to get from point A to where she started to where she is now and being a successful woman. I just, I would love to pick her brain. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at, where people start to where they are now. Absolutely. Politics aside, leave all that stuff out. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, she didn't, she didn't come out of the womb as a, a national, excuse me, an international right sensation and, and talk show host. And the things that she's been able to do, um, 
you know, for the folks who've come on our show as well as, I mean, just the, you know, we, we see all the, all the memes and all the jokes about, mm-hmm. well, you get this and you get this and you get this. The fact of the matter is I wouldn't mind sitting in on her audience and being gifted a Range Bro, Rover either. So you know, I, I would not be upset one little bit. Absolutely. Uh, Marvis, tell us a little bit about uh, your background. You're from California, right? I am. I am. I, um, my family is from Bruton, Alabama, okay. small town in the, the coast of Alabama. It's right on the border of Florida. So I have Southern tendencies through and through being raised in Southern California, a little bit of time in Long Beach, a little bit of time in Ontario, and most of my time in Oxnard, California, which is in Ventura County. It is a predominantly, let's say, Hispanic community. Sure. Especially now. Um, and I love it. I love it. We have a good mix of a little bit of everything. And it being California, you have variety of a lot more than Alabama, but... For the most part, it was an integrated community. It is a wealthy community in certain parts. Other parts, not so much. Right. But it's home. The food is great. The people are great. And everything about Oxnard essentially made me the person I am right now. And I I love it. I wouldn't take it back for anything. Yeah. And I can agree with you on Southern California. I mean, as far as Ontario goes, uh, Growing up, my dad had a pest control company that was based out of Chino. Nice. And so summers, man, we'd leave here, uh, leave Arizona, drive out to California. And I'd spend three months. Um, he had pest control. And then on the, the other side of the house was uh, like remodel work. Okay. And so I learned how to, you know, I spent everybody. Oh, I remember being in, in school and, oh, you get to go out to California every summer. It was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hitting the beach and surfing right, every day, guys. Right, like, right, uh, right. you know, maybe at one point in time, but my hit, I hit 15 and my dad was like, sweet, here's a hammer and a tool belt. Get to it, man. <laughs> Let's and go to work. <laughs> Let this go to work. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, growing up, Marvis, I mean, what were your, uh, interactions, if any, with local law enforcement? I know PDs in California are, are numerous, uh, especially in Orange County. I mean, you've got Orange County Sheriff's Department, but then you've got just all the other, everybody from Irvine to Newport Beach and Long yes. Beach and and, yes. and Brea and Yorba Linda and all those, you know, the smaller towns. I mean, it, it, it seems like you can't throw a rock in Orange County without running into some sort of police officer. Absolutely. And I grew up, I was born in 1983, so I'm 37 now. And with that being said... I grew up in the Rodney King era. Sure. So it was a different time back then in terms. Well, let me rephrase that. It's probably a little bit more of the same now and different. Um, it's different in the sense of, I think, the the police officers itself. We didn't have as much variety as we have now. Right. I think we had the traditional white male, clean cut maybe military style haircut, military build. I mean, tall, slender, muscular, the button down, yes, the tie. Yes, the yes. Whole, yeah. Now we have, I think more of what the world needs. Sure. A little bit of everybody, people from the community, people that became police officers for different reasons, rather than just to have the badge and have some type of enforcement. But my interaction with most police officers growing up in Southern California, it was never really bad but it was never really great. Right. So because I had a mom that was a disciplinarian that believed in the belt, Yeah. I didn't have that much interaction with them. But during the times that I did, say I was walking back home from a store, anything like that, getting stopped, I can remember getting stopped and, hey, keep your hands out of your pocket, do this, do that. And those are things that being in the law enforcement community now that I realize those are safety precautions. Sure. But as a young man... A kid, 
I didn't think I was that much of a threat. So it just, I have perspective now. So I can look back on it and say, oh, I wasn't really mistreated too bad or mistreated at all. But looking at some of my friends, a lot of their interactions were a little bit different. Did you, and did you have, uh, I mean, friends growing up who uh, now look at you and they can't believe that you're in law enforcement? For sure, man. For sure. I, I cannot, I was truthful on my application 100%. Sure. But I did not think that this was the path I was going to take as a, as a young boy, for sure. Right, right. Well, and it's, uh, I mean, it's everything from the, the people you surround yourself with, uh, the, the culture coming up. I mean, I, and I, I, you were born in 83, I was born in 90. So the Rodney King era for me didn't have as great of an impact. Um, uh, because I was what, two, three years old when it happened. Yes, I sir. mean, I was living in California. We didn't come out to Arizona until I was like five, but I don't have any recollection of the ramifications of what occurred. And it wasn't until getting older, getting into college and getting into the Academy that I realized what a profound impact that had and you look at some, you know the state of California, who it seems every, I mean, twenty or thirty years, if you go you go back, you had the Rodney King riots, you had the Watts riots back in the sixties. Yes, uh, there certainly is a tumultuous history between Californians, specifically persons of color in California, and and their law enforcement officers. But I think you're 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 right in that. I mean, as as we move forward, I think we're starting to understand. Uh, that there needs to be a shift or, well, and I say needs to be, there is currently a shift being undertaken within the greater law enforcement community. Yes. Cause I think there's so many of us now, the, the, the millennials, the, the uh, latter half of, uh, or are you Gen X or Gen Y or has, I don't, I don't pay too much attention to it. Man. I've been called a millennial so many times. I've just understood hey, that I, that's I what I, I think I fall in the Gen X category. Okay. Right on. Uh, but again, I mean, we've got, uh, yeah, we still have your. I, I I think that I am probably your stereotypical cop. I am a six <laughs> foot tall white dude, blonde hair, blue eyed. Like, dear God, this, this uh, is true. This uh, is true. You know, every I wore that button down right up until they authorized outer carriers. Right. Um, and now I have shaggy long hair, and I roll my <laughs> sleeves up, and I'm just trying to be as casual as humanly possible. Uh, you know, low regs as far as uh, not quite being outer regs, but right. But I work alongside with black officers and Hispanic officers. I went to the Academy. I don't know that we have any where you and I work, but um, I went to the Academy with uh, one or two Native American officers. And yes. there's, there's finally uh, a push toward really having that representation of law enforcement be a true cross-section of your community. Yes. I don't, I'm not going to say we're there yet, but I think we're moving in that direction. And I almost think that there's with all the the rioting that's taken place, I mean, I, I sat there and I was like, well, like, what the hell? Like, we're doing the best that we can. Like, out here in Arizona, why are we seeing the ramifications of something that occurred in, in Minneapolis? But it was that night sitting out front of the gas station. You told me that even now as a cop, you get pulled over, you're nervous. Man, Kev. The thing that I realized is, hey, like, hold up. Who am I to to judge people's reactions? I'm, by all means, I'm not supporting people rioting and looting but the fact of the matter is i did not grow up as a black male in america yes sir i grew up as an upper middle class white dude in scottsdale arizona like what the fuck do i actually know man you know it's fearful kev um and i hate that it's that way i um i'm every bit of six foot 265 
Um, I'm not a little guy by any means. And I can just remember I was speeding. I was going faster than I needed to go. Sure. And I was trying to get my daughters to school. And I remember just driving within the city, pulling over my vehicle, um, getting lit up from behind, pulled over, rolled all four of my windows down. I had my hands on 10 and 2. And I had my palms facing myself. And I do that just because when the officer walked up to the window, I want him to be able to see the inside of my hands, not the back, so he doesn't have to hesitate or think about me having mm-hmm. anything. And all I kept thinking in the back of my head, even though I wear the uniform seven days of the week, he doesn't know that. Right. He doesn't know that I wear the uniform. He doesn't know that this is what I do for a living. But I think it, I was even more fearful was I don't want to make the wrong move and reach for something. And I'm just trying to think in my head like, okay, let me tell him what I'm doing. I was really aware of what I was doing before I did it, what I said before I said it. Because the last thing I wanted to do was have something bad happen in front of my daughter. And that was just like, I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts going through your mind, but those are real things that I encounter every day. And I see that even now when I make traffic stops, when I pull over, not just a minority, it could, it could be a white guy, it could be a white female, but especially minorities that I pull over, I see the, the fear. I hear the fear in their voice and I see it in their eyes. And it's, I, I don't know how we can get around that. I'm not sure we'll ever get around that. It's it's a difficult position to be in on the other side of that traffic stop. Yeah. I, well, it is for, I don't know that we're ever going to get around it either, but I think it comes down to individual officers' ability to diffuse a situation such as a traffic stop, right? I mean, I, I sit uh, on a canal bank and I run LIDAR on one particular road where we work because I routinely get people doing it's a 45 mile an hour road. I can routinely get people upwards of 70 on that road. Yes, so it's sir. a, it's a good spot for me to sit. And the first thing that I do when I walk up to every car, I don't, I, and again, everybody's got their own style. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about going into law enforcement, or you're a new cop. We're going to, we're going to cover a bunch of things today and, and on every preceding episode after this, but you develop your own style. And, yes. and my thing is, is always walk up to the window. Hey, I'm Kevin with the police department. The reason I pulled you over is because you were speeding. I don't do the, uh, like, oh, I'm officer with blank police department. For those of you just tuning in, um, just some recommendations that were given to me, maybe avoid the the last names and the agencies that we work for. Uh, so if you're wondering why I'm censoring myself, that, that is why it's just so I don't piss off too many people that go. sign my paycheck. Um, the, the, the rules that we, we have to make ourselves live by, but I've never been one to be like, you know, do you know why I stopped you? Like every now and then, maybe. Um, and I usually do it with like a half joking manner. If I pull that person over and they're sitting there like, Ooh, yeah. I, Ooh, yeah. I was right. doing, I was doing like 90. And I'm like, do you know why I stopped you? And they're like, yeah, I was going way too fast. And I seem to have decent luck with that or, or at least a good outcome, even if they're getting a ticket. Because I, I try to just keep people as as relaxed as humanly possible. I'm like, hey, look, you got pulled over. I think I maybe know one person who's never been pulled over, and they may be lying to me. Right. But getting pulled over doesn't have to be the end of the world. And I think that it's incumbent upon us to remember to explain that to people. We can sit there all day long and go, look, I'm not going to just walk up to somebody and execute them in their car. But from what people have been seeing in the media 
that's kind of almost what it seems like we're gonna we're gonna do is we're gonna walk up to them, we're gonna hassle them, we're gonna yes. rip them from their vehicle, uh, we're gonna handcuff them and chuck them in the back of a police car and take them to some sort of like gulag somewhere is almost the the thoughts that some people have. Right. Um, and I saw that again uh, trying to understand that how I grew up, which admittedly was extremely privileged. Um, whenever I would ha- in the past had pulled over uh, a person of color. I would, I would see that and I would get that like, Oh shit. Like what's this dude want? Like that reaction. Um, and again, still, still doing my best to maintain that sort of easy going, you know, Hey, let's, we're just going to be cool and we're going to get through this and then I'm going to go that way and you're going to go that way. And that's going to be the end of it. Um, but now I see it with damn near everybody I pull over, man. So as far as working through it, like you said, man, I don't know that we're going to, we're going to get through it. I just think it's on us uh, as as individual officers to show that, hey, look, there's 10% of assholes everywhere. I'll be the first to call asshole cops, you know. One, they're try, out there. Once, they're, out, they're out there, man. When we have, a, a, you know, the, the facts and circumstances of whatever occurred, um, and we've all, in, we've all encountered him one way or another, we'd be like, no, that dude's a dick. Like, like what he did was fucked up. Right. Um, and I would say that's the other part, important part is to understand what took place, but it doesn't even have to be just on traffic stops. Just anytime you interact with somebody, I had arrested a dude, I, I don't know, two weeks ago, I think, um, black dude and we're, we're at the jail and he and I are smoking and joking with each other and, uh, got up, uh, our, our jail is divided. The officers sit on one side of, of the detention center wall and we process people. And then we, we hand them off back to the detention officers. And I went to hand them off, uh, to the detention officers. And I was like, Hey man, good luck with everything you got coming up. Um, and, and thanks for being cool. And he actually stopped and he, he gave me like a fist bump and he was like, Hey, I, I thought that because you were a white cop, this was going to go one way, but it didn't. And I want you to know that I Man. appreciate that. And it's not, that's not to be like, Oh, look at me. Look how cool I am. Every single one of us who wears a badge has the capability to be cool with somebody. I, agree. I think you and I spent time in a particular gang detectives car. And one of the per- first things that he taught us, uh, is, and this is back on FTO is everybody is deserving of, of your respect. Now the one, the one caveat to that, what I've always told people is, Hey, I'm super easy to get along with right up until you give me a reason not to be right. You come at me sideways, you disrespect me. Like we'll, we'll play, but it doesn't matter if you've just stolen a car, if you've got heroin, if you've, uh, you know, just gotten into a bar fight, like I'm, I'm going to, do my level best to treat you with respect. Are there times where we got a short fuse? Absolutely. I caught myself plenty of times over the summer. First of all, it's 120 degrees outside. Everybody's got a short fuse in Arizona, but just with the ongoing stress of COVID-19, the ongoing stress of the talks about defunding local agencies, the ongoing stress of protest operations. I mean, we were, I don't know how many days you worked straight through, but I think the majority of us worked anywhere from, uh, I'd say a minimum uh, of 10 days, 10 days, right? 10 to 14 days, depending on, depending on which side of the week you work. If you, if you worked the back half of the week, you kind of got screwed just the way that it all, uh, absolutely timed out. And, and to go 10 days straight in your, your, away from your families, which, I mean, those of you who have been deployed overseas, you're like, Oh, well, 10 days through. Well, that, that must be nice. It's only 10 days, but for, for a profession where, Hey, that it's, go to work, do your 10 hours or your, or your, whatever your shift may be, your eight, 10, 12, and then you go home and then you get two, three days off. Sometimes some agencies get four days off and then you go 
back to work after that, but to not have that ingrained patterned break that we're, we're so used to. Absolutely. I mean, there's, and on top of that, we had, well, we had the, the shooting in April that I think you and I were on that scene. Mm -hmm. And then we had the officer involved shooting not too long after that, where one of our guys took a round through the leg. Yes. And when I went back to work the next day, there was this group of kids and all they were doing was trespassing in a community pool. They had no business being there. None of them lived in the community. Um, and it was like, Hey guys, you got to beat feet. And one kid wanted to get sideways with me. And I just went fucking 10, eight on him because I had just had it up to that point. And even my guys were like, uh, you're not usually like this. You should probably just like, just take a walk, dude. Like, go, go cool off, go down to the gas station. Just like, right. Chill out. I shoot, man. I, it's just, it's been a hell of a year for, for all of us. When you think about what's going on, Kev, if I may, if I can kind of turn this interview around. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being interviewed now. This yeah, is exciting. I, I like, like it. it. <laughs> when you think about what's going on, do you find yourself having a healthy reservation or fear when making a traffic stop on anyone? Not necessarily a black man or a black female, but is that same fear, that healthy fear equal on all traffic stops? Or do you find it's heightened as opposed to one traffic stop to another? I think it. I'd always had that healthy, like, okay, like we're going to, I, I was taught by a DPS sergeant Mm -hmm. and I had a DPS, uh, that's department of public safety in Arizona. They handle highway patrol. Uh, and I had a a DPS, uh, training officer in my class and then our traffic stops were all taught by DPS. So I've always made passenger side approaches. And part of that is the safety aspect. So I would say I've always maintained that like, okay, I'm going to try and make this one as safe as possible. There's, there is an element of unknown at the height of the protests if I had to make a traffic stop, because again, we were also being told to stand down on traffic stop just because of COVID, they didn't need us, you know, no unnecessary workload. But at the height of the protests, I would say I was a little bit more concerned because I, I've seen all the footage of these cops being dragged through the streets or their cars being set on fire, their mm-hmm. police stations being set on fire. And they're, I mean, if you're making a traffic stop, you're the one being proactive. But I would say that I was feeling targeted almost and so each traffic stop there was like an additional apprehension Mm. but that didn't change the way that that i approached it you know windows come down hey i'm kevin with so-and-so police department this is why i stopped you but walking up to that car always in the back of my mind is like holy shit like what's gonna happen on this one because again it goes right back to now it's not just minorities that we're pulling over it's everybody who looks at us and is like what does this asshole want like absolutely what are these cops doing and why are we pulling each other over and then marv i think that compounding it is i would say it's a fairly normal practice for our agency and i would i mean maybe for a lot of agencies never been a cop anywhere else but that that backup officer that second car rolls rolls up on your scene and now these people are like are you fucking kidding me there's a second cop here right and then they're they're getting amped up and you're trying to keep them cool and it's like look all that person's doing is making sure that i'm okay and they're like well i'm not going to shoot you well i don't know you're not going to shoot me you know and, that, and I, i've said that to plenty of people like hey here's the deal man this is why things are done well i'm not going to hurt you you should know that but like do i know you because what i know that how, how would, would i, I possibly that? know that you're not going to hurt me right my first knockdown drag out fight was with a Decent sized drunk woman. <laughs> Didn't think she was gonna I thought her boyfriend was gonna be the one to punch me in the face. That dude was cool as could be. Right. This chick, she was scrappy. Right. I mean, it's been 
the the six foot five dudes down to the little like four foot eleven chicks. Man, you cannot just go into this job and at any point of your career thinking like, oh, that person's not going to fight me because right. they might surprise you. It might be that day. That might be that day, man. I had a dude uh, in a, a store that rhymes with Schmalmart, um on a on a shoplift, and I've worked this particular area for three years. I've made God only knows how many arrests out of this uh, store. And uh, I go to, to detain this dude for shoplifting. He's got a fucking screwdriver in his hand. Mm. And so that we got to go, you know, play WrestleMania for a little bit. Right. Um, you just can't. And shame on me for walking. Like that dude's right hand disappeared. But I think, oh, well, almost four years into this, like, what, oh, yeah, this dude ain't going to do shit. Blah, 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 blah. Um, that, no, he had like a curved, cur- he had curved the head of the screwdriver. Come to find out he'd curved the head of the screwdriver. Not that he would admit it, but looking at everything else is to uh, pry open security locks on various things at the store. Right. Uh, he maintains that he was not trying to stab me. My question is, why do you get a screwdriver out of your pocket when a cop walks up to you? So, but would you say, uh, kind of, kind of shifting back. Um, I'd mentioned earlier the, the, the time last year, I think maybe two years ago, I think you were working swing shift because we worked graves together off of FTO. Yes, sir. And then you were working swings and somebody, no shit, called in a suspicious black male driving a police car. And it's Marvis. Man. Tell, talk to us about what the hell, because I wasn't working on your side of the city when that happened. Dumbfounded, I think is the best word that I can think of in the moment. At the time, I was like, ridiculous, strange, comical. There's a lot of words you can use, and I'm trying to keep it PG, even though I could probably go all the way to the left. Sure. But with that being said, strange. It's just strange. I, I've I couldn't even part, wrap my head around it. I've been a part of being in in this particular field. I've seen plenty of dumb calls. And I hate to use that word, but that's what they are to me. When they say we have a suspicious male. And they oddly never want to give a description no, of him. They never want to give a description. Weird. Or they want to stay, remain anonymous too, which is right. what I absolutely hate. Like, put your name, put your stamp on it. Like, yeah. if you see something that you think is suspicious. Own up to it. And you want a police officer to respond. Give me a contact number, state your name so I can understand where you're coming from so I don't think you're just some idiot being entitled or being scared of another race for no apparent reason. And you'll get calls that'll say, we have a suspicious male wearing athletic clothing, running style shoes, black with a few tattoos, and I saw him put a gun in the gym bag. This is Arizona. Yeah, everybody's got a gun. Everybody has a gun. If not more than one. <laughs> Everybody has a gun. Everybody's, people's dogs have, oh no bullshit, goodness, people's seriously. dog harnesses have fucking holsters, man. So <laughs> when you see or hear a call for service like that, and the fact that a lot of times those services, those call for services are still made just because we want to be able to make contact with that reporting party just to see if there's anything else before we cancel a call like that. Right. Because, okay, this person made a call, so maybe... It's not what I think it is. Maybe it really is something. But usually when they when they have enough decency to put their name to something in a phone number, you contact them, you realize, okay, this is really nothing. It yeah. really is. 
and I don't want to make another bad interaction with the public and the police officer. So let me just drive by there, see what I can see. And if there's no disturbance whatsoever, if there's no type of crime being committed, if there's nothing that I can deem suspicious, I won't even make contact with that person. It's not right. even necessary because you want to make as many positive contacts as you can with the community rather than making these negative ones that you see a lot on television. Somebody, you and I have worked with Phil, um, put it best that, uh, well, there's a handful of Phil's that we work with. Um, this particular one has sleep tattoos all up and down his arms. Um, he's a entertain, also a former bartender from what I understand. But, um, one thing that he'd said that was profound when I was, and he's only got, I think, another year on further than I do. Right. Um, but one of the things that he said that was profound is, you may be the only cop that that person encounters Man, all year long. I do remember that statement. He said it a few times. Yeah. And what do you want them to think? Yes. And it, I swear, it's like you were on a call I had. It was earlier this this uh, this year. It was probably pre-COVID, I think. Um, shoot, it might have even been last year. And I remember joking about it with one of the dispatchers. Um, we'll get a dispatcher on the show and we'll talk about, you know, how calls for service are determined to be valid or, or, you know, what they're required to do, because you look at it and it was a uh, suspicious male wearing a black tank top, black shorts, running shoes, um, just standing on the corner, right? This neighborhood has a canal running along it with a running path. Um, I get around the corner already knowing the direction in my head, already having a good idea, I should say, where this was going. Get around the corner, and it's a, a black male. He's sweating. He's got AirPods in. Man. And uh, that canal is a running path, and then the whole there's a whole park there. It's a beautiful area to run. Yes. And uh, the, the reporting party had wanted to remain anonymous, but I asked dispatch for his phone number because I was like, no. Like... You need to take your fucking New Balance sneakers and your tucked-in shirt with your <laughs> denim shorts and go back to your fucking barbecue because this is unacceptable. But those are consistent calls for service that we get. Yeah. They're, they're consistently made, and they're made probably throughout the country by people at different times. There'll be a suspicious call. I see a vehicle in my neighborhood, and I know everybody in my neighborhood It doesn't look like it's supposed to be here. Now, that's a little bit more understandable than the suspicious male with athletic clothing. Sure. But even that, like you don't know everybody's no. family in the neighborhood. Dude, I don't even know everybody. I mean, my, my podcast studio uh, is in my house cause that's just easy. And that keeps me from having to pay rent somewhere. I don't know everybody on my street. Absolutely not for sure. Like I, I know people like within the next like two houses, either side of me. And that's about it. And Kev, even if you knew more than most in your neighborhood, you don't know all their family. No. Like it'd be somebody coming out of town from Kansas or from New Mexico exactly. or from California to visit. You don't like making statements like that, that, well, I know everybody in my neighborhood, that car shouldn't be here. Well, it's a public street. Like, right. what do you mean they shouldn't be here? What does that even mean? So it's difficult. Or how they, do you know it's not, so, you know, a, a trade person rolling up to, you know, take measurements or some interior cabinets or, right. or give an estimate for painting or something along those lines? Man. Like what? I mean, I've had people call in their own pest control companies. And as a former pest control technician, I take that. I, shit, I find myself a little bit offended on that one. Because I'm like, really? You didn't know you had pest control today? Right. Oh, that's who that was? Yeah, it says so in big letters on the back of their shirt and the side of their vehicle. Right. And they're like, oh. Oh, all right. Well, hey, sorry to waste your time. Uh, which the other one that, uh, what is he saying, family guy, what grinds my gears is the uh, 
I know that this is stupid, but like, no, then don't fucking yeah, call us. Yeah, you already set the tone. You already set the tone because I'm going to be completely honest with you. Most cops are going to stop listening to you For at sure. that point. Absolutely. Because you're right when you say, hey, I know there's other things that you could be doing. You are 100%, 100% correct. Right. For sure. There are plenty of other things Man, that, I was, that I could be absolutely. doing. Absolutely. I mean, and like like getting getting back on, on that topic, a lot of people have talked about the systemic racism in law enforcement. And I will not deny, as a, as a student of history, uh, you look back into uh, certain eras of this country, you look back at 1968 and 1969, it was some of the most tumultuous years that this country has ever seen. And I would say yes, that sir. we're probably on, well, almost on par for, for 1968. Uh, with with 2020 and, and what we've seen. And I will never deny the heavy-handed approach by law enforcement officers during that era. I will never deny the, the shady shit that cops, uh, particularly in Southern communities, used to do in, in the 50s and 60s and, and what was then deemed socially acceptable. I would argue at this point in time that I would see more of that, that systemic racism just with the people who fucking pick up the phone and call the non-emergency Man. line. You hit that right in the right on the head. With it, that one. It, it's it's some of these communities. They still have this holier than now. Like I, no, no, no. Like like we said, I know everybody in my in my neighborhood. No, you don't. It's not a chance. I don't know the people who live behind me. Not a chance. When you think about, you mentioned the term racism, um, and I'll even go in a different direction in regard to sexism. Yeah. Do you think within police agencies? Females have it harder than males. You know, I, I think I think there's two approaches to it. I may very well get lit up in the comments for this because I think that some agencies, um, there seems to be a prevailing thought from the male officers that, oh, the female officers are going to get whatever they want. They're going to get their way. Mm. Uh, I can say that uh, the majority of female patrol officers that you and I work with are just as fucking hardworking and, and still put their best foot forward and make all the same efforts to get where they want to go in the agencies as, as you and I do. Right. Um, you've got um, officers that, I mean, we work with an officer who's black, female, and gay. And she's an ass kicker. And she doesn't demand anything. She knows she puts her best foot forward. Then she's probably going to at least start to get the direction that she wants to go. Yes, sir. Just the same that, that any of us do. Um, I think that it's almost, I, I, I don't know at the administrative level, cause I've never been an admin, but at the officer level, there seems to be this thought of like, like that officer that I just talked about. Oh, well she checks all these boxes. She's going to get whatever she wants. I think there's more of that, that asshole thought process from, from maybe line officers as there are from, administrative personnel at this point but again i've never worked in admin i don't know if somebody's sitting up there with a fucking dartboard and a checkbox going like okay we need so many black officers right. we need so many hispanic officers so i don't know that that they have it easier or harder i think it it depends on the agency you look at um we have a, a female officer working for us who i think was one of the first female swat officers in the state my direct RTO at the academy was also one of the first female office or SWAT officers in the state. Uh, I have to applaud them, and this is not me pandering straight up. Like I have to applaud them for making that effort because law enforcement has a, and I would we're we're working on it, but it has been a predominantly male dominated field. Yes, and then you go into SWAT, 
and that is the boys club that is saturdays 100%. are for the boys like we're gonna fucking barbecue and drink and then we're gonna you know maybe not all in the same day we're gonna go breach some doors you should or maybe reverse that order right. breach the doors then go barbecue there and drink go. that's there probably you safer you keep your fingers and your job right um uh, but to to break into that uh, 100% like male dominated. It's almost like women going into various special operations communities for shit, 60 or 70 years, right? You look at the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs, that has just been 100% like testosterone fueled, like male dominated. And now that narrative is, is, is being questioned. Now, Kev, I don't know if this is just my two cents on the matter. I I would like to think that a lot of females have the same mentality as minority people in general. And what I mean by that, there was something that was ingrained within a lot of minorities, black, uh, black, Hispanic, maybe even Asian, Native American, all these different ethnicity groups that we feel like we start off behind the curve. Sure. Therefore, we have to work twice as hard as the next person in order to get looked at and maybe three times as hard to get ahead. And as a female... I think a lot of them already feel that right out the gate because of male dominated professions. Mm -hmm. So them coming in, I'm not sure if it's ever been said to any of them because I can't speak to that, but I would have a feeling that they feel like they have that healthy chip on the shoulder. Like I'm going to go out and not only am I going to do extra, this is just going to be a part of me moving forward because I want them to know, like I want to earn everything I get and not, I'm not looking for any handouts. And I think that's just, that's that's probably something that's common between black men, black women, Hispanics, um, all these different other ethnicity groups across the country. I right. think that's just a, a common denominator between all of us for sure. Well, and, and I mean, here we, I, I would say that I have not heard a whole lot about what it's like to be a female mm-hmm. and a law enforcement officer. Right. And I work alongside my supervisor and one of my my beat partners are both female. Right. And I mean, hell to a point, shame on me for not having that conversation with him. Right. right. <laughs> Just call them up. We'll get them both in here. Sure. I got extra seats around this table. So, um, I would be intrigued to know if, if they come into, uh, this profession with that sort of behind the curve chip on the shoulder, uh, mentality, or I, this is going to sound terrible, but I, I would almost, I would be concerned, um, if they're coming into this profession as if it was uh, like that show Mad Men where like, no, like you're a female officer. Like, well, if you want to get somewhere, like, you know, ah, oh, man. And, and I wonder you have to imagine that somewhere that is still taking place. Oh yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. And yeah. I can't co-sign for any of that, but if I had to give an educated guess, I would think so. Yeah. Hopefully it's, it's, Again, we just need to work on getting it to be like, no, that's look that somebody if you're not raising your children to be like you're not raising your boys to be gentlemen, and I don't mean like top hat wearing, cane carrying, you know, monocle wearing right. like assholes, but <laughs> somebody who will hold a fucking door open for somebody and yes. say please and thank you. That chivalry. Yeah, that chivalry, exactly. If you're not teaching that from the from the outset, you're wrong. Right. So I had a, uh, a Lyft driver the other day. My truck was in the shop and she was asking me about, uh, we got talking about kids and she was like, what is the one thing you want your kid to learn? I was like, I got an 11 month old. Uh, right now I'd like him to learn to not fall on his face, there but go. going forward from that, I'd like him to learn to be a proper gentleman because that's how we're going to get out of all this shit. Yes. Is, and, and that is 
I mean, it doesn't take a particular skin color or a particular sexual orientation to just not be a fucking asshole. Man. Like, let's start there. I think a lot of the issues that we see, um, I mean, shoot, like I said, I know everybody within the two doors of where I live and two doors down is an adult man child taking care or taking full advantage of his parents to the point where I say his address to the officer. I don't live and work in the same city, but the officers who work in this city that I live in, I say his address to the guys who work this area. And they're like, Oh yeah, no, we know that house. Like, well, shit, by the way, I live two doors down from that. So just, (laughs) just make sure that y'all are rolling in. (laughs) Just give me a heads up. I would appreciate that. But like, where, where do we go wrong? Uh, you know, parenting, I, I, I go back to, you know, I, I work with officers who are fresh faced 21 year olds and they're having to parent people's nine year olds. Man, Like what the shit? I like, I can't even wrap my head around it. And now, and I say to people, well, as a parent and I've had people blow up and well, as a parent, you should understand like, actually I don't. And I'll be real. I'm like, no, my kid's under the age of one, but you are allowing this to whatever it is to go into like this unacceptable level. It's mind blowing at times, Kev. Yeah. Going to a call and having a parent that's older than I am literally say, I don't know what to do with my child. Like, can you help me? And it's okay to ask for help. I'm all for that. And and I can applaud that, but it's just wild to like see the kid and the kid is talking to them any type of way. I'm 37 years old and I don't think my mom's ever heard me cuss because I just don't cuss in front of her. No, I'm, I'm pretty guilty of that there, one. But no problem. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that I know that do it, but I'm an adult, pay my own bills. I, you know, I, I'm independent in every sense of the word, but that's not how I talk in front of my mom. Right. But she knows that I do cuss. I'm sure she's heard me outside conversation or maybe even on video or whatever the case may be. But in terms of in her presence, I can refrain from using those type of words because that's just the respect that I have for my mom. And I see some other young kids I'm talking about that are still using their mom's insurance that are still living in their parents' house. Oh yeah. High school age, if not younger. Like what? I had a, what did you just I had a 13 year old flip me off and call me a bitch the other day, Man, me and my partner who was a female officer and her dad. My mom would have whooped my ass back in the day. Oh, and I asked Even the dad. Now. As a, I, I, I don't want to put too much validation into oppositional defiance disorder because I feel like the cure for that is not medication. It's a boot up the ass. Man. But uh, then again, I'm not a psychologist. Yes. So I'm not going to tell a psychologist how to do their job. Yes. Um, but I have to wonder, like, what? to this day, my dad is 60, uh, 64 years old. I'm still afraid of him and with a with a healthy amount. He and I are like the best of friends now. He comes on ride-alongs. Like he brings the team sandwiches. Like we have a good old time. Yes. We talk on the phone at least every other day, if not every day. Um, but I'm still like, my dad never used to like beat me, but my dad's got these like meat hooks for hands. Man hands. Man hands, bro. And, <laughs> and he would poke me in the chest and I'd go like, it'd be like being hit by Thor. I'd go flying across the fucking room and I still can feel like, oh, I need to watch what I say around him because I'm still, I'm going to get thumped in the chest and, and my six foot, 200 pound ass is going to go sailing across the driveway. (laughs) Now, Kev, when did that, because I'm sure like with most parents, that fear was instilled in you early. Oh yeah. Real early. When did that fear turn into respect? 
probably later than it should have. I can distinctly remember probably the, and I'm sure it happened more than that. I can remember getting that, that like finger thump in the sternum and it wasn't ever very hard. I never actually would go flying anywhere, but it was enough to be like, like that, like you need to listen. Yes. Um, and I can remember being in an olive garden and probably being an asshole five-year-old or six, seven, somewhere in there. I think it turned into, uh, probably about high school is when I started being like, okay, like, and, and I mean, he didn't continue to thump me in the chest until I was in high school. It, it legitimately, it probably happened like under 10 times. Those thumps started to make sense. Exactly. Sudden, right. Exactly. But I would say, you know, my dad, uh, I can remember my dad when I was 15, my dad would tell people like we'd be on job sites and he'd be like, Oh yeah, that's my kid over there. He turned 15 and I turned stupid. And, and looking at it now being almost 30, like I can under, I, I get what he's saying about like, these asshole 15 year olds thinking that, that, uh, that they know what's up with the world. And you just sit there like, no, you don't know shit, dude. Like, right. wait, you're about to get a rude awakening. Absolutely. I would say that turned into a healthy respect. Um, probably towards the tail end of high school. And I always had a massive amount of respect for my dad, but the older I get, the more appreciative I am 100%. Uh, of the discipline that I had. Yes. Um, and I, I think that there's, I don't think I, there's this prevailing wisdom uh, nowadays that like, oh, well, we have to like coddle our children and soft hands and warm and fuzzy play safe spaces to the oh, point where goodness. even the United States military is getting to the point where they're like not yelling at people anymore in boot camp. Like you may very well have it to where police academies yell at you more than military boot camps do. And even police academies are. And again, I mean, it's not it's not a one to one comparison, but. I mean, the police academies are going this route of adult learning. Um, I, I got my ass chewed out on the daily for at least the first three months. And then it would just be every, you know, when you earned it, you were getting your ass chewed out by your academy staff. Uh, but again, that, that developed into a healthy respect for your academy staff. And you learned very quickly to just mind your P's and Q's, do your job. Softer America is the route we're going. Yeah. If I think that could, that can actually segue into something else. When I think about a softer America, I think what we're having, what we're seeing in some cases is that that might be when a lot more force is being used because of the softer America. So let me, let me give an example. We have a situation where there's a male that's being verbally combative. Mm -hmm. He's talking to maybe one officer and that officer calls her backup. The officer and the subject are continually, continuously going through a conversation and he's being combative, saying he's not going to do this, he's not going to do that. And instead of that officer maybe going hands-on much earlier when he or she should, he waits till another person gets there, then maybe they go to one of the many tools we have in our tool belt. Instead of just giving a hard grab, a hard grip a uh even a, a punch if needed to be and where i'm going with it is i think in a lot of cases force is not used as soon as it could be used because sure. we're softer in a lot of ways so we don't want to go over the top and i'm all for that not using too much force right but sometimes a good old-fashioned ass whooping just to gain custody of somebody is I think the route we need to go, and that would prevent a lot of things from happening. Because right. while you're fumbling trying to get your taser out, he thumps you in the face, and now he gets your taser. And yeah. Now you're at a point where he has a, a non-lethal weapon, so to speak, 
and now you have to use another tool on your belt that can possibly terminate. Which is life. probably going to be your handgun. Yes. Having ha- and 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 that goes. I mean that that's that same situation from. Well, I mean, again, not a one-to-one, but that situation in Atlanta uh, outside of, uh, what was it, a Wendy's or whatever fast food restaurant it was. Yes, sir. Having been tased uh, in the past, and not even by an X2 or an X3, which are the, the issued, sort of police-issued tasers. I was tased by their, I think they their C2, whatever their civilian model is. I do not, I cannot function while being tased. No. You could kill Absolutely me. Absolutely not. Tasing me, you could kill me. And knowing that, and th- I think, short segue departments are doing a disservice um by not having their officers like when you call with your taser you should be getting shot with your taser so that you understand what's up um that neither here nor there we'll we'll move past that that's just a that's a training that's a training issue for another podcast right um but yeah softer america is is these cops being afraid to grab onto somebody well another dude that we work with noah uh he said it best to kind of just, you know, similar to what you said. He goes, people are just afraid of being punched in the face now. That's what it is. That's what it comes down to. And you know what? Like, I think the first time you get punched in the face, hopefully it's in either it's in high school like I was, or if it's in the police academy and they're, you know, you guys are doing your little boxing session and you get clocked in the face and you're like, okay, that sucked, but I'm still here. And you don't have that, you know, maybe that fear of, like, oh, what's going to happen if I get hit? I've never been hit before. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And then, yeah, more cops arrive on scene. You go to take this dude into custody, and, and it's just an all-out brawl. Um, and and who knows? You know, he's got four cops walking up to him, whatever the case. Then again, strength in numbers. I always say stack the deck in your favor. But yes. if you can if you can verbal judo somebody and talk to him, talk to him, talk to him, okay, now we're going hands-on. Yes. But if this dude's being a straight-up asshole, we had it the other night. Some guy straight-up told my sergeant after he ping-ponged his – fucking Dodge Ram like 14 miles while he was drunk and he ping-ponged it off of cars and street posts and all sorts of stuff. He totally looked at my boss and was like, yeah, you're not going to arrest me. And she was like, no, that's where you're wrong, kiddo. Right. And even she, by herself, started to go hands-on with this dude. And then and then he wanted to tussle and she gave him the what for and the why how and, and put the loving hands of Jesus on him and uh, problem solved. He stayed vertical and alive. Uh, we've We've come across multiple situations uh, in our department, I think both of us where you get done and you're like, holy shit, that, that could have ended so many different, different ways. I mean, and and I would say I'm not, not giving people a pass part of it. You know, the, uh, both of those, those two sort of high profile incidences, uh, where we had the guy shooting with the rifle who then tried to shoot down a police helicopter with a nine millimeter handgun. I mean, it's not the worst idea in the world, but there's, there's been smarter decisions made in the past. Um, I ended up on a rooftop because that's the only way that I could see this dude because he was tucked away in an alleyway. And he had, I mean, he had cops at either end of the alleyway. I think I was probably closest to him until a SWAT rolled up with their tactical ice cream truck. Um, but the thing that kept that dude alive, he was being given orders by the the uh, flight officer in the helicopter. He popped back up. Safety on the rifle came off because I'm like, this dude's already leveled 100 rounds towards us. I mean, and the radio traffic that went out initially, I'd already thought that one of our guys had been shot by this dude. That dude then immediately began to comply with the helicopter once again, and that compliance is the only reason that guy's still standing here. 100%. Um, and you just, you get to, like, climbing off that rooftop, like, that damn. Breath. Yeah, you right. got, and you got to, I mean, it, it it takes its its toll on you, and you're like, okay, but 
then I almost go to, you know what? That's that's our training to a certain point. Yeah, it's the individual officer's decision. And it's it's who that officer is as a human being, but it's the training that you've received from the academy forward into your into your department that these people, you, some of your suspects that you look at at the news across the country, you're like, oh, that dude would be dead. He'd have fifteen holes in him at least. Absolutely. Well, no, he's still vertical. He's handcuffed, being treated by the fire department, whatever he needs to be. But he's going to go to jail, and he's going to get the justice that that he has earned. He or she has yes. earned. Um, and you look at it and go like, okay, we got to be doing something right. My fear is, well, shit. At what point are we going to get something wrong? You know, and and you hope to God that that never never occurs. But you get officers that are, like I was saying earlier, that are spun up because they're they're stressed out, they're overworked, they're they're not getting uh, the support that they once had. I mean, maybe there was there were people who. We're, we're on the fence kind of either way, but they, they wouldn't bad, you know, oh, you know, you'd say hey to them and they'd be like, oh, hi, you know, not the, oh, good morning, sir. How's your coffee, sir? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't, I don't need that in my life, but the out and out, just like verbal abuse that you would get from, from people this past year takes its toll on officers. And you got to wonder at what point do those officers start to make bad decisions because they're just mentally thrashed. Man. And I, we talk about bad decisions and thinking about, Let's say some of our smaller officers. Sure. Some male or female, because we have a handful of them yeah, within the yeah, department. Yeah. But let's say we have one of our smaller officers that's about, let's say, 5'4", 160 pounds, so to speak. And they're dealing with one of these ex-collegiate ball players mm-hmm. that's 6'5", every bit of 260. And they're in a tussle. Do they have to take an ass whooping now before they can go to lose the force? Or is that even an option? Or do they just have to get pummeled? Yeah, no, and, and and they don't have to be. And that's something that I, I think a lot of people don't realize, a lot of people outside of law enforcement don't realize it because we're taught that in the academy that, hey, like size size does matter. It does. And we're not we're not sitting there shit talking. If you're five foot four, I mean, shit, dude, you and I work with people who are five foot nothing, a right. hundred pounds soaking wet. Right. Uh, height and weight is not a requirement. Absolutely. You know, or, or I, well, maybe some places it is as far as, uh, you know, being, being like overweight, but I've never heard of anybody being like, you have to be a minimum of 174 pounds and 14 ounces. And, you know, and, and you have to be able to bench press your body weight times, right. times half. And, um, but no, I mean, you get somebody who's getting their absolute ass handed to them and they go to lethal force. It, it's that, okay, am I going to die right now? Cause again, and the Supreme court has said this, but actions of law enforcement are not to be judged with the clarity of 2020 hindsight. Yes. I've never been a five foot, hundred pound officer. Who am I to judge that officer for their decision? Um, you know, if they're and it, if they're getting their ass kicked. Now, if you have a place where you can maybe size up the situation, this person's uh, you've got distance. Maybe they're not they're they're by themselves. They're not hurting anybody, but they're clearly just a little bit loopy, like we've seen. And they've got a stick or a bat, yes, sir, uh, or or that that one dude we have running around our town who is the alchemist with the little piece of metal that he has that, that he's like sharpened into an ax. Like you can create time and distance where we work. I think we're fairly lucky because I mean, any serious scene that we get, shoot, did you get two people responding to a barking dog call more out of boredom? I'm sure than anything else, Absolutely. but any serious scene that we get, you're going to get a minimum of six to 10 officers. The last shooting I was on, which wasn't even, there was no officer involved with it. It was literally a drug deal gone bad. 29 patrol officers 
sergeants and lieutenants rolled up to that call. And that was pretty quick. And that, within within minutes. Right. And, and I would say that your first officers on scene were there within a minute of it occurring. Um, and, and you get somebody in an alleyway somewhere who's got their little sharpened piece of metal and they're losing their marbles uh, all over it because of drugs or whatever. You know, they've been baking in the sun all summer, all summer long or whatever the case may be. Okay, hey, I'm going to need additional officers on this. But if that person rushes you and is just trying to beat the ever-living shit out of you and you can't handle that that situation because they have 150 pounds on you, I don't care how good of a fucking MMA fighter you think you are. Exactly. You're not probably... If that person gets one good hit on you or gets you on the ground and then sits on you, you're done. Like, that's the end of that. That's as far as you're going to get. Um, and you may have to then go to that lethal force option. For those of you playing the home game who have never been a police officer, a taser doesn't always work. And as we get into the colder months, tasers are going to fail more and more because the taser doesn't do so well when it meets more than like a t-shirt. Yes. Let alone a, a thick jacket or a, a hoodie. The taser is just not a great solution. A lot of people seem to be afraid um, to go to their batons because of, and I carry a side handle baton, uh, but even I'm aware of the maybe the image of a side handle baton because for a lot of people who were around, say, during Rodney King, that side handle baton has a very distinct like memory to it. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have its its uses. You bop somebody in that that common peroneal nerve bundle in the mm, leg with a baton across the shin. Across the shin, they may stop fucking around. Yes. Right. Um, or again, if you if you're a cop and the most defensive tactics training you've ever gotten was in the academy, you're wrong. Fix yourself. Do something. Yes. Get get out there. Um, if you're local to Arizona, here's my little plug for my buddy Chris Haynes. Stay ready training. It's $60 a month. Uh, and, and I think they put on like six or seven classes a week, and it's unlimited. You can go in there. Chris is a, a former uh, like professional fighter, um, former uh, sheriff's deputy, uh, works with another guy in there who was a sheriff's deputy. They, they've got... They're training in law enforcement, they're training and experience, and then they've got what they bring to the table. Um, but find something local to you or hit up your your DT instructors within your department. And if your department doesn't have a DT instructor because it's a small department, maybe seek to become that DT instructor. See if you can't go out and get the training. I know COVID, you're not probably going to get authorized to go to training for anything right now. Right. Um, but but once we're, once we're free and clear of this COVID stuff, try and... Uh, and, and get out there and, and do some of that DT training. Because I run across a lot of people, Marvis, and it seems to be more... I mean, again, I'm only 29, but it seems like the younger we get, like the less experience they have with taking a punch to the face or being in a fight. I mean, I took Krav Magal through college, um, and I had somebody, when I came to the department, was like, hey, you need to stop taking Krav Magal. It doesn't look good on camera. Well, it fucking keeps me alive. Yes. So... I mean, my brother-in-law celebrates Aikido and, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, we work with a lot of dudes who are all about BJJ and, uh, um, you know, whatever other form, Muay Thai and, and whatnot. I like Krav because Krav was literally intended uh, for, like, life-or-death combat situations. And sometimes if you're in a fight with somebody, that's where you're getting to. And that's what you can almost anticipate if you're wearing that, that uniform, whether it's blue, black, or whatever color it may be. If you're in a physical fight with somebody, he sees that uniform on you and he's deciding that he's not going to go without a fight. Right. And depending on what that person might have in his background jacket, 
you don't know whether this aggravated assault is going to get him in jail for life. Right. Or if it's going to, you don't, you don't know what his history is. So right. just, if it gets to that point where you're fighting, it's probably going to be a fight for your life. Right. And the, the one thing I would, I would add to that, and this is going to sound super strange, but when that fight is over and you've dusted yourself off, try to understand that it probably isn't personal. Like it's not suspect wanting to kill Kevin. It's not suspect wanting to kill Marvis or, or even kill it's he's maybe trying to get away. From, I say he just cause predominantly it's, it's males that, that fight us. You're right. Um, but it still goes back to like, we had a, a tussle with a dude and he ran from us, took us on like a quarter mile foot pursuit. And then he hid in a dumpster, um, like you do and got pulled out of there at gunpoint. But after the fact stuck him in my car, Hey, why'd you run? Well, I'm on probation. Okay. Hey, you think if I wasn't wearing all this shit, I would have caught you? No, man, I don't think you would have caught me wearing all that shit. You slow as hell. And it's just, you can still go back to that, that sort of respect, right? Because I think that'll go a long way um, as well. But that's, that's just kind of, I don't know, my own personal take on it. It's hard to not take things personally, especially in this job. But you have to understand that that person doesn't hate you. They hate the badge that you're wearing, the patch on your shoulder the fact that you're wearing a gun belt and handcuffs and all that good stuff. So that's just, that's just my, you know, the way that I, I try to look at things because it's especially this year I've started to take things personally and I've had to take a step back and examine that. And thinking about that, Kev, we've talked about shootings. We've talked about racial tension. We've mm-hmm. talked about sexism. We've talked about traffic stops and we just talked about being in altercations. How important is handling your mental health in this profession. Oh, it's it, I. One thing I will say that law enforcement is behind the eight ball on, and we're just law enforcement is a big lumbering machine, beholden to national, uh, not just local but national standards, um, and it is largely reactive. You talk mm-hmm. about cops being proactive, individually being proactive is. I'm going to go out and make that traffic stop. I'm going to stop that dude on a bike who doesn't right. have a bike light. Because, you know, that maybe in this area, you know, there's a lot of drug activity in the past three weeks, and we've been getting intel that somebody's on a bike and they leave at night. Well, this dude's leaving it, the area on a bike at night. Like, that's proactivity. Armoring car doors, that's going to be something reactive. Um but, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. I, I lost my whole train of thought. Good. <laughs> no worries. No worries. I can, I can bring it back. Yeah, bring it back. Where I'm at with it, because we're talking about how important your mental health is. Oh, right. I think that we have things that focus on leadership a lot within this department. So we have like a leadership cohort. Right. We, we got have, all leadership classes you could shake a stick at. We have all these different supervisors that want to groom you to be better and be in a leadership role. I think we should have that same type of energy going towards we have a mental health cohort. Sure. And not necessarily being in a critical incident and you feel like you have to go to it. I think being a police officer is a critical critical incident itself. Just like anytime you put in the uniform, you go on the road, you see things that you can't unsee. And I know I'm speaking from experience and I know I can probably even speak for you in that sense. Like we see a lot of things within this department you can't see, and those things don't leave you. And I think it's important that we have conversations about it. I think it's important that we deal with 
other people within her department where we can kind of vent to one another. Even this podcast alone is almost therapeutic for me. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. And and part of the reason I set it up is because sometimes I I just got to get shit off my chest. You talk about where I was going with the reactive and like armoring car doors and whatnot is for the longest time and even still to a, a point mental health in law enforcement is this taboo subject. You don't talk about it because they're going to take your gun away and they're going to put you in a little padded room with a therapist and you're not going to be allowed to come back into your job. And then you're going to have this little black cloud. Even if you do come back and you're given a clean bill of health, you're going to have this little black cloud that follows you everywhere and just, just rains on you everywhere you go. And you're going to be like a leper. Like they're going to paint your door and nobody's ever going to come near you. Nobody's ever right. going to want to work with you. Um, but again, that, that slow lumbering machine I think is starting to turn towards like, Okay, longevity in law enforcement, there's probably some sort of, you know, something some that ties it into uh, to ensuring your mental health. Like agencies have that, that critical incident stress management team, right, your, your SISM team. But again, those only come in after, it's in the name, after a critical incident. And even then, I mean, the, the two shootings that we've, you know, seen this year, and because I know you and I went back to work uh, when, when our officer got shot, we'd like, I drove 90 miles an hour back to the station and got back into a car, uh, and ended up just shagging calls, but that's what needed to be done. But there's still that like, holy shit, like this dude that I, I know. And, and I mean, uh, in a pretty decent size agency, like we have, like we're a medium size agency, you pretty much know everybody. Um, but it's like, I've worked with this dude before and now he's yes. shot. I don't know his status. Like, I don't know what's happening to him. Um, and the agency in and of itself to a, a point on a large scale, hopefully you have those. And, and I do, I've been fortunate to have the good leaders, but you're able to debrief that. And my Sergeant, who's a part of our critical incident stress management team is very much like, Hey, if you need to take a day just for you, take a day just for you. Like you don't need to, it, I'm not going to sit there and argue with you about calling in sick or this, that, and the other thing. You just need to sit on your couch all day long and like just recenter yourself. Yeah, so important. It's, yeah. it's yeah, it's absolutely important because that's, what's going to get you through uh, at least in Arizona, you used to only have to get 20 years and then you could retire. Now you're at 25 years and then you can retire. And I would imagine at some point in time, it's probably going to get to 30. Right. Um, but, but if you want your officers to last, especially right now, I'll tell you right now, every cop that I've talked to has an exit plan. Every cop that I've talked to is like, nah, if this, if one, if this happens, I'm gone. Or if one more thing happens, I'm going to go do this. I've got my pool company on the side. I've got my roofing, you know, my contracting business. I've got my whatever the case may be, I make wooden flags. Like I, I'm ready to, right. to at least have something to keep me busy. Um, I think our agencies across the country and they've got a thousand and one things to focus on in the administrative level. I'm not blind to that, but where does the priority of your officers continued mental health land on that scale of what's important? You've got to manage a fleet of vehicles. You've got to manage all the tools that go along with being a cop. You've got to manage all your, all of your employees to include your non-sworn personnel. You've got your dispatch center wants new computers. Your lab wants new, I've never been a scientist, whatever laboratory equipment you want that's new. Right. Your, your officers are bitching because their 2017 Tahoe isn't a 2021 Tahoe. <laughs> um, 
you've got officers that are like, these light patterns in our unmarked cars suck and we're going to get rear. Oh, hey, somebody did just get rear ended. Now we need a new light bar. Like, you know, right. oh, hey, one of our officers just, uh, if you're me, ran into a light pole in a bank parking lot at three o'clock in the morning and we have to go fix a Tahoe and probably discipline an officer. That's a true story. Um, luckily, it was on private property, so I didn't get a citation. Um, but, uh, you know, where where in that spectrum of importance does does your officer's headspace fall? And it's it's on the individual officer to a point to to take care of themselves. But if you're working with these people day in and day, I mean, how many times do you hear like, man, I talked to that guy every day. I didn't know he was going to take his life, man. You have to wonder what more could have been done to avoid that. Right. Because and that's the way it happens. Right. I mean, we've, we've been on calls with suicidal subjects. I just had one last week. The ones that. The ones that get you, they don't tell you a damn thing. Absolutely. They're not calling and asking for help. Despite the fact that we're always telling people, right? And I would say it started with with veterans, right? Coming back from what what is now the longest war in U.S. history uh, with Afghanistan. And, and again, it was probably, I was never in the military, but it was probably really taboo to talk about mental health because it was a good old boys club, right? You didn't talk about uh, post-traumatic stress, right? And uh, up to what, up to desert storm or even probably up until more recently than that, it was just shell shock. Like, Oh, it was, uh, well, they just can't hack it. It was just the bullets going overhead. They're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. But it's like you said, it's the stuff that, that we see. No, we're not in combat on the daily, which I can't even imagine how stressful that might be to roll out in an armored truck as part of a convoy, wondering when the ground's going to explode underneath you. We don't have to worry about that. What we do encounter, and I can still remember the first, yeah, I think it was the first uh, dead body call, and the, the county medical examiner took the eyeglasses off of this corpse, and the eyelids went with it. I, I still see that shit mm. in my sleep, dude. Like, that that sticks with And that was all natural causes. Like, they were just, they were elderly, and that's just what happened, but they lived by themselves, and they weren't found for a while. Um, like, that that sticks with you. It's the kids that are, that are broken and damaged. It's the, the just fucked up car wrecks that we get into. You wonder, you wonder why those cops are pulling you. Oh, there's nobody else on the road. So what if I'm doing 70? Because jackass, I just had to look at a mangled teenager in a car three weeks ago or whatever the case may be, who was doing 70 and their car fucking exploded when it impacted another vehicle. Right. That's why we're out here doing traffic enforcement. There's a reason to it. I promise I don't get paid based on traffic stops, right? Ever. Quote, quotas. If your agency has a quota, shut that shit down. Like, legit. Get with your union. Do whatever you have to do. I think quotas are a, a problematic. They, they create more problems than they solve. Um, let your officers just develop into themselves. But your officers that give a shit will still do things like pull people over for driving too Absolutely. fast. Because Absolutely. the officers that give a shit are still out there watching all this stuff go down. You know, seeing the kid on the bike get hit, seeing that car that ran into the other one and exploded and killed the driver, you know? Right. Why are we still enforcing DUI laws? I uh, I read a post a couple weeks ago. It was like, we should really just be getting drunk drivers like a ride home. Okay, well, how many times have we run across drunk drivers that have killed people or that have destroyed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of of property after, after they... Like, like I was saying earlier, they ping pong themselves down a fucking small street, a residential street, and then blast into somebody's garage right. and, and into their living room. What we do is all done for a reason, but we need to start making something that we do, at least at the agency level. We need to be more focused on mental health. Um, 
just in general. We're going to get there. We've got, you know, what the, the first outside training that I went to, I was still on probation, was to be a CIT officer. That was because nobody else on my team wanted to do it because right. the CIT program is looked Same. at. It's it, Right, and you're a CIT officer, right? I am. And it's looked at as like this, oh, you're just, you're just the Care Bear squad. Like, well, guess what? I still carry a rifle. I'm still qualified on a 40-millimeter less lethal launcher. I still carry a side-handle baton. And I'll still get down into a fight with somebody if I have to. Seven days a week. But it's one more tool in the toolbox. And it just gave me that extra little bit of training and understanding. I mean, we get like two hours of it a year. You go and, okay, it's only a, it's a 40-hour class. But it does give you that little bit more. And it just gives you that added mindset that I will tell you right now, if you haven't done it, working with people um, who are truly in the throes of insert mental health issue here, that is an extreme challenge and it can be exhausting. Absolutely. Uh, nonverbal autistic kids, uh, uh, elderly people suffering with dementia. You run into people who truly are uh, schizophrenic. I had a guy have an entire conversation with John F. Kennedy in the back of my car once. Oh my goodness. Um, and, and trying to like get through to him like, Hey, I like, where can we like, Hey, do you have a place that you would go? Here's where I can take you. You're not under arrest. But again, you're getting in the back of a police car that's got bars on the window it's a safety issue, right? We only have so many police cars. You're not going to specially outfit a police car for crisis intervention. Right. We tried. It's expensive. Um, but even that, that CIT program is still, like I said, it's still looked at, Oh, you're just the care bear squad. And there's not like people don't put stock into its success yet. We get these critical incidences with suicidal subjects and it's like, okay, we've got less lethal in route. Okay. We've got rifle operators in route. I can we get a CIT officer or a negotiator out here too. That's just a tool in your toolbox. And at the very least, Having these situations, at least ask for them on the radio. Again, if your agency doesn't have a CIT program, reach out. Usually, usually you'll get a couple seats for free within your CIT classes that are being put on. Mm-hmm. Um, we we go through a, a, a different agency here in the valley. Um, there's an East Valley CIT training program and a West Valley. If you've never been to Phoenix, it's like 600 square miles. It's pretty spread out, so there's usually an East and a West to everything when it comes to to training. So. Um, but if we're now putting stock in CIT so that we can truly provide the assistance needed for folks that we come across, even if it's calling someone else, right? We're not social workers, right? We're not true mental health professionals. We have a, a basic understanding, right? I mean, it's just like you go to a, an eight hour first aid class. You're not a paramedic, yes, but you're pretty good at putting a bandaid on. Yes. And you probably know like, okay, a tourniquet goes there we need to have that same sort of outlook on our own mental health. And if those of you listening to this that are officers, I mean, hell, it goes to anybody. You don't have to be a cop, right? Everybody's got their own stresses in life. Have something that you can just sort of zen out with, right? If that's playing Absolutely. video games, shoot, build a Lego. Leg- Legos are a recognized form of therapy. Man. Go go to Target or well, Toys R Us, rest in peace, Toys R Us. But go go somewhere <laughs> and buy a Lego set. You'd be surprised as to how much better you feel at the end of building your little Absolutely. Star Wars Lego set, man. I've got a ton of Legos upstairs. My wife, I think, figured out that I had a Lego obsession from a young age, and it's truly something that, I mean, hell, turn it into a date night, right? You guys there you sit go. there, grab a glass of wine. I, I don't drink wine, but grab a glass of whatever and, and build your Legos. Legos and chill. Let's do it. <laughs> um, you'd also... Um, worked worked at doc i did how much time did you spend down there six years six years and was that here in arizona that was here in arizona what i've never worked in the prisons um i did uh 
termite work at a at a, uh, a facility down in, in Florence, and that was I was inside the prison. That was the closest I've ever been, but in a professional setting. Do you find that? Um, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. When I come across people who have spent time in DOC, they are usually the most respectful people I've encountered that week. Do you find that that being a cop versus being a, 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 a corrections officer? Are there some similarities or there, you know, is it a, is it a one-to-one comparison or is there like, holy shit, it's a completely different world. And are the people within the prison, are they easier to deal with than the people that we contact shoplifting at the local store? And when you talk about your interaction with people from DOC, you're referring to the inmates, correct? Yes. My interaction was, I had a good experience in the department of corrections. I was, as I said, I was there for approximately six years it helped me tremendously. If I had any type of input on our officers and training process in terms of when they graduate the academy and they come to us, I would recommend that they would all do a phase in our detention center. Sure. Yeah. And I would recommend that just because working in a state facility or federal, but working in a state facility you deal with people from all different custody levels and a custody level is basically a number that somebody's assigned and it dictates where they go in the yard. And usually like if you're a max custody level inmate, then the leeway is as much, you're on a much shorter lease. Yeah, you're not in, in like a, you're not like general population at exactly. that point. You get your like one or two hours a day in the yard and that's it. Exactly. So when you're dealing with somebody that has a custody level of, let's say, four or above and they're in a max custody level and they're they only get one to two hours of rec time a week there's nothing that i can really tell them to take anything away from them so i have to communicate much better because he's not going to do anything he doesn't want to do or she's not going to do anything that they don't want to do so it doesn't matter whether i tell them or not what are you going to do put them in prison exactly you know what am i going to do give you another life sentence on top of the life sentence you already have Mm -hmm. So you just learn how to communicate better. And I think that same applies to the people that I deal with here in a police officer setting. Nobody is going to do anything they don't want to do. The badge doesn't give me power. It gives me an authority to be able to take away somebody's freedom for a period of time. But it doesn't really give me power. And I never got that twisted when I became a police officer. And I don't know if that's because of my upbringing because of my time in the Department of Corrections. But what I do know is that in most cases, I'm dealing with adults. Every now and again, I'm dealing with juveniles. But in most cases, another grown person can't make another grown person do something they don't want to do. Sure. I can give them options. And that's my job, to give them options. Like, hey, this, this, or this will happen if you do this, this, or this. And if you do any of those things, then these are the possibilities. What do you want to do? Right. That's the way I mean, like, I go back to to shoplifting because truly shoplifting is one of those like discretionary. Mm-hmm. I can give you a ticket and cut you loose. And usually, what I'll tell people is like, "Here's the deal. I got to I got to know who you are. Like you you are legally detained, and Arizona law basically states that I get to know who you are. You have to provide me with your truthful information, your truthful name at the very least. Um, if you don't have any warrants, and you're cool to me, you don't have any drugs on you or anything like that." 
you're just going to walk out of here with a ticket. Even if you're if you're up front with me, if you got a little bit of weed in your pocket, that can be added to the ticket. Right. If you're an asshole, then you're probably going to be going and spending the night in jail. So you can spend the night in a box, or you can spend the night in your own bedroom. Like, how do you want your day to go? Your choices. Choices. And just try to be real with people. And I think that that... I, I definitely get where you're coming from. I never worked in the prison systems. Where I learned to talk to people was always doing, like warranty work and shit like that because there people are always angry with you about something right <laughs> but um but working in in that detention center setting has to be advantageous like you truly it may suck when you're there especially if you come in to be a police officer and you're like damn it i have to do a month in the jail after after academy right but you may come to find just like just like i was saying earlier with the with uh, the little bit of discipline that i got from my dad that that serves you in the long run it and does. it gives you a hell of a perspective to go off of um and, you know, the, the folks that I've encountered from from DOC that have that are former inmates, the vast majority of them long. And this goes for pretty much anybody on the street, but especially prison inmates. Um, you see these dudes, they got tats all over their face and, you know, Nawa 13 or whatever the case may be. And you can sit there and be like, holy shit, like this is a legit gang member, a legit prison inmate, blah, blah, blah. You give them respect. They're probably going to give you respect right back because that's that whole. And you talked about power earlier. Don't don't go into a situation thinking I'm the power here. Like I'm the cop, hear me roar. Right. Just be real with people and have that little bit of respect. You'd be surprised how far it gets you. 100%. Now, are you going to run into people who just don't give a ever living shit about how respectful you are? You have those. Absolutely. You do have those. Oftentimes they're drunk or high. <laughs> uh, I, I find that alcohol is way, way harder to deal with than heroin because alcohol usually emboldens people and heroin they get sleepy. So, right. and, and people that are high on weed are just kind of like, yeah, whatever, dude, like, uh, whatever, man. Like they, they truly fit the stereotype. Meth and Coke are totally different, totally For different, sure. uh, 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 cases. And, and thus far I have not seen anybody try to eat anybody's face with bath salts. Um, but, uh, but it, it was in your time in DOC is where you did, uh, like wildland firefighting as well. Right. It is. Can you speak to that a little bit? I can. That was an experience like no other being a part of, the wildland fire crew for Department of Corrections and Arizona Forestry. Once I got into that position with uh, DOC, essentially I, I worked for Arizona Forestry at the same time. Um, I went through an academy doing that. After that process was complete, I dealt with inmates that were part of a wildland fire crew program. And at that time, I was working at a female facility, so I had all female inmates um, my supervisor was a male at one point in time and a female at another time. So I had a combination of both. Um, I had a partner who was also a female. And we would fight wildland fires across the state in the state of Arizona. Be gone for a maximum amount of 21 days at a time. You had to have a two-day kind of rehab mm-hmm. right after that. And then you can go back out for another 21 days. And that was probably one of the best experiences of my life. Now, how is an inmate? How do they, Obviously, that's not the people who are in there for life. That's... You know, what, what, uh, what's the criteria? What are, what are the criteria for? Cause I see it with like, again, you and I both being from, from California, a huge chunk of Cal fires, wildland firefighters seem to be from the DOC population, right? Because that's, that's a workforce. They're probably more than happy to get out of the prison Absolutely. for a little while. Um, but, but yeah, I've always been curious as to like, well, I mean, are they in here for like tax evasion so or the majority of the inmates on the fire crew when I was there? were all able to apply for the fire crew if they didn't have any violent crimes in their jacket. So we're not talking about, like, murder, right? manslaughter. 
We're talking about DUIs. We're talking about uh, maybe child support violations. We're maybe talking about um, like possession of paraphernalia there or you something go. like that. Yeah, you know anything that's non-violent. Um, if you have, I'm trying to think of anything that kind of stood out that didn't necessarily prevent you from getting on um, arson. Now, I know that sounds strange. I'd almost say that you're the expert, and, <laughs> and, and you have no better place to be than on a wildland fire team. I, I know that sounds strange, but I guess if you have a history of arson, you wouldn't be um, allowed to apply. Sure. But if you had maybe one charge of arson in your jacket, you'd be able to apply. So, wildland was a, it was an experience, man. Just going out in the middle of nowhere, um, seeing the state in a whole different perspective right. because you're literally in the middle of nowhere. Right. You're truly out, out yeah. just, I mean, amongst the trees in, that, in you the know, wilderness, man. nobody's and, ever walked there or if it, if they have, it's been hundreds or thousands of years. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the part that you fly over on your way to Vegas or LA or Texas or whatever exactly. the case may be, but exactly. nobody's ever actually, you you may be the first, it's almost like space, man. Really? It's almost like being on the moon. Right. Like you nobody's know, actually been here. Yeah, you were the first, like you were the first person to physically ever touch right. this area. Right. Um and, and part of your your wildland experience was uh uh was it two thousand thirteen with uh Yarnell Hill? It was, yeah, man. That was uh like my second or third real fire. Um and what I mean by real fire, that was a multiple week fire. Um, the first fire I was on was probably one day. We kind of mopped it up, did what we did. That was it. Second fire was another day, mopped it up. That was quick. My third fire was the Dosi fire. And that fire itself, I had the, the honor and the privilege to work that fire with the Granite Mountain Hotshot crew. They were part of that fire. We had a critical incident with a member of our crew that had passed out. And some of the EMTs from their unit came over, assisted talk with Eric Marsh, who was the the crew boss for their crew. And um, that was the last time we had the opportunity to see them for that unfortunate mm-hmm. death at Yarnell, which was the fire after that. So if anybody's familiar with the movie that depicts their entire existence of that particular wildland fire crew, there was a big juniper tree in the movie that they all took a, a picture at. And that was the Dosi fire. That was the fire that we were all a part of oh, together. okay, okay. After that fire, they left and they went to Yarnow Hill, and that was that. Yeah, that was. I mean, I. That was just a truly tragic event. I had at that time, I mean, being twenty-two, I was actually going through fire science classes because that was the the goal at the time wasn't to get into law enforcement, to get into firefighting. Yes, sir. And so many guys that I was going through the the program with uh, at one of the community colleges, Wildland was just like that's just what they went and went in and did and it's one of those things that you got to wonder if uh fate the universe god your guardian angel like whoever i mean i applied for 10 or 12 wildland crews and and just was like missing it each time for, right. for whatever reason but uh uh at a friend of mine at the time john who was uh working wildland uh and another guy aaron and all i had been told i literally got woken up Right, because we all had the same group of friends. We were mm-hmm. all wanting to be firefighters. Got woken up. Hey, man, uh, like nineteen guys are down at Yarnell. I'm like, what the fuck? Man. And trying to get a hold of of John and Aaron, and nobody's answering their phones. And you're just like, okay, are they on Granite Mountain? Like, well, shit, I don't actually know. Like, I don't know if they're with Mesa Hot Shots or Granite Mountain or or who, you know, 
whatever their team uh, name or call sign is. Um, and then they, I mean, they both have had, had had experiences with, with Granite Mountain and, and interacting with that team. And then, I mean, they were up there, they were working that fire. Thank God they weren't in that area at the time. Right. Um, but it, I mean, it just goes, goes back to like that mental health and, and, I mean, you talk about it. Marv, you've seen some shit, man. I don't know if, uh, man, if that clicks, bro, Kev, but. It just kind of reliving it right now during this conversation. Sure. And that is everything that you go through in life, I suppose, serves a purpose for later on in life or maybe just for that particular time, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But as we were talking about the mental health stuff, there are things you can't unsee and you can't unhear. Right. They're just, they stay with you. And just being able to have an experience with those particular firefighters and then a week later like they're gone mm-hmm. like whoa like wait what so you have that and then you know I, I ended up leaving that agency i mean i did wildland for years after that but after leaving that agency i ended up coming to the agency i'm with now and completely switching professions maybe dealing with that has helped me overcome certain things in this particular department. Sure. And maybe my experience might help somebody else overcome something else. But I think that mental health is important. I think we need a mental health team for the department, for officers is dealing with certain things that we focus on that. So not only are we dealing with helping our officers, you know, get better equipment, better vehicles, all these different things, but we're also making sure they're mentally ready, mm-hmm. mentally fit for duty. Yeah, and I think that just, I mean, it's just going to go that much further, as as we've said already, into the longevity of, of your officers and adding to just their, I mean, really, you invest in them. If you think about it from an administrative standpoint, if you invest in your officers, you're, I mean, it truly is a business, whether or not you want to look at it like that or not. But if you invest in your officers, the end product you're going to get is that much better. And that's what's going to set Absolutely. set the standards. Um one last thing I wanted to touch on, just because we we've been talking about it a little bit uh, the past couple uh, couple weeks uh, with some of the, the folks that I work with in in your experiences um, with DOC and Wildland, and then coming into this agency, you've been you've been the new guy. Oh yeah, we've all been the new guy. Yes, sir. Um, I want to take you know the last five ten minutes or so of this show and talk about to, to those of you that are going into law enforcement, or to those of you that you are in the academy or, or you're in the application process, understand that you have our respect, right? You're though, and I get, I've only been doing this for four years. It's hard to imagine myself as senior to anybody, mm-hmm. but I am. I mean, our badges are sequential and I've got 70, 70 officers that I'm now senior to, which I can't wrap my mind around. Right. It's um, wild, man. Yeah. It's wild. And, and these officers, they're coming to, to, and I mean, our badges are only separated by, by three numbers. Um, and you have these officers that are coming to you and looking to you for, for guidance. Part of being the new guy, being the new guy sucks. Like there's no way around it. Like stinks. You're, it stinks, man. They're, they're, your, your team. It, one thing I was told that holds true is that the police academy teaches you how to be a basic police officer. Yeah. Your field training program teaches you how to be, a police officer for that city because every or agency I should say because every agency excuse me every agency has their own 
flavor, right? Their own way of doing business. Mm -hmm. But it's that first patrol team that you get to. And hopefully you have more than eight weeks with them. But that first patrol team that you get to is that's where I think you're going to learn the most. And you and I, our first patrol teams were the same patrol teams. You had, I think, four or five more months than I did. Um, speak, speak to the new guys a little bit. New guys and gals, if you're listening. Sure, yeah. And yeah, when I say new guys, understand I'm talking about men and women. Ask questions. Ask questions. Um, if it doesn't look right, it's probably not right. And what I mean by that particular statement, when you're out and about, you're probably going to go right to graveyards right off of your training process. Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to be working not a so good beat out in the middle of nowhere in the darkness. And if you see something that looks kind of fishy, especially at night, see if you can get that consensual stop. Maybe see if you can get another officer there. Um, Also, and this is what I would like to spread to everybody. You don't have to be a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Whether you're taking the barking dog call or whether you're going to the active shooter call, they're getting paid the same amount for everything. Mm-hmm. You're not getting a bonus because you show up to the active shooter and you catch two bullets to the chest, you know? Just like you're not getting a bonus if you're dealing with the barking dog call. There is that phrase is not a racist a marathon. Right. It really is. It really is. Just don't abuse your power. Something that Don't abuse your authority. Let me rephrase that. Don't get badge heavy. Yes. I had a supervisor who I highly respect. He told me something that really stuck with me. He said, this badge represents two things, and it gives you the opportunity to do two things. And those two things are, if you go hands-on with somebody, you can take their freedom or you can take their life. And he said, don't ever take any of those two things lightly. Right. And that kind of stays with me every time. I know that when I have to go hands-on with the person, and what I mean by the term hands-on, if I'm letting somebody know they're under arrest, when I initially grab them, you're usually going to feel some type of tense, no matter who it is, whether Mm -hmm. it's an older lady, whether it's a young man, whatever the case may be. And I usually grab them with a sense of authority where they can feel that I mean business, but not to the point where they feel like I'm trying to break their arm. Right. They got to earn that one. That's it. Um, And just with that being said, for all the new officers, just make sure you ask questions. Make sure you kind of keep your eyes and your ears open. Yep. A lot of times it's better just to have that rather than talk and think like you know everything. And just know that this position is always evolving. Just just know that it's always evolving. It's always changing. Um, The division of the world right now might get better, might get worse, but... Everything moves in waves. Right. It just kind of goes up and down. So even though it might get better, let's say in 2021, 2025, it might get bad again. Sure. So we just never know. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I mean, I'm right there with you, man, with the the one thing I would say to, to the new folks out there is uh, find work. Yeah. That was something that coming up through, um, you know, the, the fire training courses and then going into being a cop and then having uh, several of my the people I look up to uh, that, that find work thing has always been something. Um, I think the first time I ever like truly heard it, I was taking a, uh, uh, like a close quarters combat course. Cause at the time I was, 
I was not a cop. I was trying to figure out if I was going to, you know, what I was going to do in my life. And there were, uh, the potential for, uh, contracting opportunities. Uh, I didn't end up going through with those, but I do remember in that CQB course, this guy, the, the instructor just being like, Hey, if you don't have a job, find a job. If it's, if it's hold a doorway, if it's process somebody, uh, you know, if it's, Hey, we need to get medical stuff in here, whatever the case may be. And it's not always going to be finding work. is not always going to be that active shooter scenario. You may be looking at, at your, your computer and everybody's on a call and there's a, a low priority barking dog call on the board and it's not your beat, but it's, it's telephone contact only. And you know, that can probably be knocked out in 15 minutes. Just knock it out. Right. Help your team out that, that what you'd said about don't, don't go into it acting like you, you know, everything, um, for those of you listening to this podcast, uh, you may have heard a. Uh, you probably know who Jocko is, Jocko Willink, um, who's a former Navy SEAL officer. He's got like a four-minute clip on YouTube um, uh, with him and, and another guy that he's interviewing who was also in the SEAL teams, and, and they talk about being the new guy. And they say that when you get out of uh, BUDS, which is Basic Underwater Demolition, SEAL, uh, the emphasis is on the basic. When you get out of the police academy and you get into FTO, you are a basic police officer. Like you get the gist of what you're doing. Yes. And when you get off of FTO, you've got a little bit more of the gist of what you're doing. But I mean, and I also don't want to take anything away from FTO because we've had, we've had officers in training their first day on the job. There's a shooting. Yes. That they are involved in. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm certain do not misunderstand, not taking anything away from the FTO process, but don't go to your first patrol team thinking you're hot shit. And that that your God's gift, um, that your God's gift to law enforcement, um, you you got to get there. Like you were saying, uh, you know, you can take somebody's freedom or take somebody's life. A supervisor that I respect would always tell us that uh, you're given a gun, a badge, and the authority to take somebody's life if necessary. Understand the gravity of that. Absolutely. And and really take take it to heart. But also understand that that everybody's human. The one thing that, that always pisses me off if, if, when it comes to, to newer officers is, hey, hey, look at me and look at everything that I can do. Like, I'm so cool. I'm this, I'm that. But like, look, man, you and I get paid the same. We're doing the same amount of work. Um, or if we're not doing the same amount of work, figure it out. Like, if I'm a slug as a senior officer, don't follow me into that <laughs> behavior. Um, but But just be out there looking for for work um and and see what you can learn if a training opportunity presents itself you come into this job wanting to go into detectives you want to go into SWAT you want to go into canine you want to go into be a helicopter pilot which if you do I'm super jealous because my agency doesn't have helicopters but um take take those applicable training courses but take the trainings that make you a well-rounded officer right I mean I've and Marv, both you and I have been to, to like narcotics trainings. Yes. Uh, you've been to additional trainings on gangs. I've been in uh, additional trainings on, uh, intelligence and counterterrorism work, um, auto theft investigations, property crimes investigations, um, take a child abuse investigations class. There is a, uh, and, and I would say that it, it probably is prevailing throughout law enforcement, but I will see, um, sex offenses and, uh, like child abuse cases sit if, if they're not a priority call and it's like a telephone contact report, that beat officer, again, it's like somebody's painting the doorway and calling him a leper. Like, they do not want to get right. anywhere near that. Take take the training if it's offered 
so that you can learn to take those investigations. You may be surprised. When I started this job, uh, I never thought of myself as going into uh, be a person's crimes detective. And well, here I am. First of the year, I am uh, leaving patrol and, and going off to be a person's crimes detective. Um, you just might be surprised what direction you end up going uh, in this career. Take every opportunity you can to learn. But the caveat to that is don't take training courses just to get out of patrol. Absolutely. Don't don't be like, oh, I'm going to take this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to, oh, I'm going to flex my time so that I don't have to be on the road this day, blah, 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 blah. Every now and then, that's fine. Like, I've got training coming up that because I can flex my time, I'm able to uh, not take vacation for my son's first birthday party. I love it. Different, right? Different story. But if you're just taking training to, like, never set foot in a police car, yeah, you probably need to reevaluate why you're here. If you want to go into investigations that badly, go work for State Farm and Insurance Fraud Investigations, <laughs> man. Don't, don't, don't come take up, a, take up a spot. And on that, I mean, I would say, as far as taking up a spot goes... Um, understand what you're getting into uh all too often well, i shouldn't say all too often every now and then we see people who get into this job and a week later they're like no nah, fuck that i'm done right i don't know what you thought you were getting into talk to people go on ride-alongs um one thing i always tell people i at the height of of the protests and whatnot there were uh i mean the, the background i come from the, the people I grew up with and the people that, that I know and that are involved in my life, they're not all blue line flag waving Trump supporters, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's a little bit of everything. And there seemed to have been a lot of confusion. And I had maybe 10 to 15 people I would see on Facebook that would hardcore shit talk cops. And then about two of them would message me uh, and be like, hey, so I'm curious as to like what your take is on George Floyd. I'm curious as to what your take is on... Um, that the Atlanta shooting uh, in Wenham. Hey, hey, can you like what like what goes through your mind as a cop? Two out of the the fifteen people or so, and God only knows how many more of them were shit talking, and I didn't see it. Right, um, go on, go on ride-alongs. Even if you're not a cop, if you have no desire to be a police officer, find your local agency, see if they'll let you come on a ride-along. I guarantee you, right now they're probably gonna say no because of COVID. But when the opportunity presents itself, go sit in a police car for four hours. You might be surprised. Right. Um, those of you that are cops, if you don't want to make, don't want to ride along, um, make sure you let your supervisor know because we don't want that person who's on the ride along to have a negative experience. Right. So you, you have the opportunity to uh, truly educate someone, use it wisely. One of the things I've always stuck by is you're not going to build relationships from behind a windshield. I heard that. So, yeah, I, uh, yeah, we've had a good long conversation, man. man. This is good, Kev. It was, it, and, and you said it earlier. It, it, it's almost cathartic. Man. Right? It's been a hell of a year. It's kind of nice to get out here. Man. I'm spoiled as the host of the podcast. <laughs> I get to do this anytime I want. I'm so, good, man. I'm always ready. I'm for about it. to buy another microphone and have you just come on as my guest host it, on the regular, bro. Let me know, man. I'm I'm with it, man. I I enjoy it. As I said, this is therapeutic for yeah, me. Yeah, so. absolutely. That's Hopefully, right. I remember to click the record button. Otherwise, we've been talking to each other for <laughs> for an hour and a half. We feel better at the end of it. Yeah, but, that's all that matters, bro. I'm with it. But. uh Hey, if you're if you're following uh, Blue Line Millennial uh, on Instagram or Facebook, leave a comment. Let me know who you want to hear from. I think just from this conversation with Marvis, uh, I need to get some female officers on here. I need to get some. I think we need to get a dispatcher on here and, Please, and talk man. about. You know, because I've had a dispatcher. Uh, I'm, I'm friends with a couple of them. Um, that uh, it, it's interesting. One thing I never considered is the emotional and mental toll that that they have to put up with. 
right? Because they, they get these calls for service where people are screaming and then they're like, uh, yeah, uh, like Adam, blah, 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 David, blah, 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 like whatever unit I need you to respond to this. Like, all right, 10, four. And then there's like, okay, yeah, I want in custody or, Hey, it's good for now. And the dispatcher never really gets any closure behind it. Right. They're not, right. they're not there. They're not seeing what's going down. So it might be interesting to get their perspective on things. And that's something I would love to know. Like, do they need closure on certain sure. calls? Yeah. I suppose a lot of I, people I suppose do. I you know to a, to a point they might I mean I, I they probably don't need closure on the barking dog um right or or the uh the report of a license plate theft um but I would imagine that that you know hey the the my estranged ex-husband is here with a gun or a knife or a bat they probably I mean that might be something especially if I mean you get um uh, over time you will develop uh what, what's called radio ear or you'll get to the point where, where you hear somebody, you hear a teammate on the radio and even they may not be calling for emergency assistance, but they can be like, I need backup right now. And you know that that tone of voice is very unusual for them. Yes. Well, the dispatchers know that too, because while you've been their partner officer for the year or two years or whatever, those dispatchers have been listening to them since day one. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that, that on certain calls, yeah, like uh, anything critical incident, anything officer involved, I would have, venture to guess that that those dispatchers that we uh i mean truly we do rely on them that the dispatchers probably do want want closure on those it'd be an interesting perspective to get so um i know a couple of them that have said yeah just let me know when so we'll see about getting them on here in the next couple weeks um there probably will not be i think i will try to record an episode next week with uh uh, matt dark horse lionheart on instagram he does some really sick cinematography next week though with the election, uh, we're all facing some uh, adjusted schedules. Man, this is going to be a different <laughs> so time it's, for it's, us. It's really next week is playing it by ear. My goal is to put out an interview episode about every, I'd like to say every week. I think we'll get there eventually, but at least uh, every two weeks or at least once a month. So, um, But Blue Line Millennial is back here to stay. This was the really the, the big uh, obstacle. Like I said, hopefully I remember to hit that record button. Um is is just finally getting somebody on the show and from from day one of starting this if you go back to the first five episodes i've talked about getting my buddy marv on the show and here we are uh first interview episode ever uh we're coming to a close uh marvis to close it out you would literally have a microphone to the world what do you want to say you guys stay healthy stay healthy stay positive i think we're going to be in for something good eventually. 2021 is coming upon us. And I don't want to say 2020 was a dumpster fire because a lot of you had had nieces, nephews, daughters, sons. You had. I got some, the position of my dream. My dreams, know? man. I got to go be a detective. Man, so, so this is a good year for you. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's going to get better. I think it's going to get better. Um, I'm a firm believer of going out and vote doesn't matter who you vote for. Yeah, get out there. It is. My sister is a uh, political science professor and has worked uh, in, in D.C. And, and works in government. And I used to always piss and moan about, like, oh, I got to go stand in line to do the voting, blah, blah, blah. She's like, it's your civic duty. I'm like, but what does that mean? Right. And now the older I get, I think hopefully if my sister ever listens to this, uh, understand that uh, I finally did listen to you, Kara. <laughs> um, and, and uh, yeah, definitely doesn't matter who you're voting for. Get out there and, and let your voice be heard for what you believe in or what you believe in or what you believe in we we does not you don't have to look very far uh to find citizens in other countries that 
do not even have the option right. of as far as who's going to be making the decisions for their country. Right. They're just told this person's in charge now. Um, don't don't squander uh, what what you, what we have there. We're in it. We're here. It's it's been a long year. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But but the good has been in there, uh, and I think there is more good to come. Skater. 2020, here we come. 2020, here we come. With that, I want to thank you all for listening to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Um, if you have any ideas for for uh, guests or for episodes, just uh, let me know, Instagram and Facebook. And with that, we'll be signing off. This is uh, Kevin with Blue Line Millennial. Stay safe. We'll see you on the road. Boom.